The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Oh, Oh, yeah, Bart, thank you. You almost shattered my eardrum there with that screw cap. Welcome to the winemakers. That's the sound of organic Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, it is. We are... Organically grown Sauvignon Blanc. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, You know what? We all know what we're talking about. It's the world and the TTB, quite frankly, that doesn't get it, so... Welcome to the winemakers. We are in St. Helena today with Bart Hansen, myself, Brian Casey. Sam is out on assignment. John Meyer's doing his radio show. So we have James Joyner in the house. Sam's official doppelganger. And we are in Joel Gott's facility, <laughs> office, strange, strange conference room. house. I'm not exactly back sure cave. what goes on here. Joel Gott's back cave. Um, yeah, we were in a uh, conference room. and um, It was interesting coming in, though. Like, you guys obviously have a very professional, very cool-tasting bar for coming up with your blends. Um, but it was a little bit like, uh, what is the, what are those things called? A, a labyrinth coming in. Well, yeah, I thought we, we tried to lose one of you on the way in. <laughs> but you stuck together. Right. It's like the corn maze. Right. Yeah. No, it kind of looked like an elementary school. I felt like I was dri- driving back to John Lasseter's house back behind the, the school over in Glen Ellen. It looked like it had little classrooms or whatever. But yeah, yeah, once we got inside, we were greeted warmly with your very friendly staff and the cutest dog ever. I will tell you, this was the courthouse for St. Helena. Judge Snowden resided here. Wait, the official courthouse? Yes, yes. If you had a parking okay. ticket or a slight infraction downtown, maybe at one of the cantinas, yeah. you would have ended up here the next day. Which is weird because we think of a courthouse as like a huge monolithic stone white building. Um, yeah, similar. Okay. But what I think is there stocks somewhere in this building? <laughs> like if one yeah. of us gets unwieldy, is there an old jail you can throw us in? No, just the restroom. But, <laughs> but, there, but there's also next to a church. So once you've sinned, you can go next door and repent, theoretically, right? I guess if you're if Joel you know also things owns about the those. church. No, no. <laughs> and if you guys want to pull those mics up a little bit closer to yourself, thank you, and um, thank you for not tapping or um, putting your phone down on this table, Brian. That, this actually the, made a huge listeners difference. don't need to hear that. That it, should have been done. It's called pre- ASMR, Bart. Oh, ASMR. Okay. So, so you guys were obviously Joel. You don't know what ASMR is either. Do you? I'm guessing that's what happens before the. Well, you have kids. You have kids about the right age to to know what that is too. ASMR are the weird fetish videos of like someone chewing with the mic really close, <laughs> <laughs> and like people get really into it. Personally, I find it appalling, but that's because I'm old. Hmm. This is where, where I right. wish this was on video, just to see Joel looking at James. <laughs> We've got James on video. At that's all just kind of how Joel looks at me. <laughs> okay, so you guys were, were hanging out with Joel Gott today, and, and those of you that know him, um, or maybe don't know him, um, we had a little inside connection with Joel, not just through James, but, but Joel actually used to be Bart's intern at Kenwood. Wait I mean, I was say it intern. your was he your he intern? He was my intern because okay. the first day he showed up, <laughs> I was handed him, and all I was told is this is a winemaker's son and to work his ass off. They actually said that to you? Yeah, Mike Lee did. Yeah, he yeah. goes, Yeah, this is my okay. friend Carrie's son. And he's it's a like winemaker. when a cop goes to jail and everyone finds out. Yeah. Well, no, but you know, I, Joel, you know, everybody like looked at you when you came in, they went, Who the fuck is this guy? Sorry, I forgot. Oh no, we do swear on this podcast. <laughs> it's your podcast. And and <laughs> and and I mean it was just that thing. When you get a new guy, you always wonder, like, you know, is he does he know what he's doing? Are we starting him from the beginning? Well, and how old was he? What, what time are we talking about? You were eighteen or nineteen years old, eight, right? Eighteen. Yeah. It would have been uh, August of nineteen nine nineteen eighty nine. Yeah. And wow. and and he definitely like like Joel, it, Joel came like he obviously wanted to work. He was there. He was fired up. 
Um, we had heard that you'd been around wine and stuff, you know, but no one really knew anything. I think the Mexican guys all looked at you and kind of said, oh, great, you know, another white guy. I'll be here in two weeks. Yeah. And, um, and Joel <laughs> proceeded to work his ass off. Yeah. And so, you know, for those of us that do know Joel, I'm not surprised at all that you have built this this company into this and all the things you guys do because I look at my son who's 16 and I don't know your son very well, but I know my son, I look at him and I think in two years, like him going into that situation, um, he wouldn't even know what the thing to do with work was. And, and Joel came at it and he did whatever we asked um, and he did it with enthusiasm and a little bit of snarkiness and overfilled um, barrels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were definitely Go some things. Forklifts into walls, right? You know, <laughs> trucks into the rear ends of other trucks. Yeah, you know. But we it's all did those things. Like we yeah. all spilt grapes on the highway. Yeah. Um, I might have spilled a little bit more. Yeah, <laughs> but Joel, you, your family. I mean, you're like fifth generation wine industry, correct? Yeah. So, uh, like, it, realistically. I mean, like in true just wine production, right? It's three. Um, so myself, my dad, my grandfather. Because my grandfather worked at Hubline, um, which at the time was um, Inglenook. Um, and hmm. so he was like general manager there. But, you know, I mean, I don't quite know exactly what that meant in, you know, right. 1965. Um and then uh, great-grandfather uh, was out in Lodi. They were twins. Um, and they were growing asparagus, grapes, nuts. Uh, they had a generator. They sold power to the town of Lodi. And they made, uh, you know, the fancy stuff out there called brandy. So they were fermenting, distilling. Um, and there was one generation before that doing the same thing on the East Coast. So five is uh, a stretch, but it, it does work. Okay. So wait a minute. So how did they make their way to Lodi and, and were they making Angelica out there? Uh, I, you know, I don't know what they were actually making. I just, I know that because uh, as they came over, they had a business um, where they, I, I don't know how, like technically what you call it, but they were helping transfer people from the Midwest. Smugglers. That's what Smugglers, we call Smugglers, yeah. So they were smuggling. <laughs> Coyote. Um, <laughs> and trafficking. Yeah, yeah. All right. So like, <laughs> and they were bringing them to the town of Genoa, which is on the backside of uh, like below Sparks or below Reno. Mm -hmm. And then somehow, I guess in the spring and the summer, they got them over the Sierras and you ended up in the Central Valley and you got a job. Right. Um, and so then they relocated to the Lodi area and that's where they started gathering land and somebody sold them a generator. So they started selling power to the town of Lodi. Which I don't understand how you do that. What, you, all of a sudden you have power. a generator and you start, what do you tell your neighbor if you want to plug in? Uh, I'll charge you 10 bucks <laughs> I, for the next I, I, week or something. Can you imagine what that extension cord looked like in 1880 <laughs> or very long extension cord. Right? I mean, <laughs> so, so that's actually... Lodi geeking, right? Um, That's where we need Tegan because he would know the actual story. I know bits <laughs> okay. of it. And I have three books on it. <laughs> the reason that uh, Lodi owns its own power company, right? It's a municipal of just the town is because Fred and Fred and Ed Carey, so who were great-great-grandfathers, sold the city the power generation plant and the natural gas uh, distribution in like the 1910s. And I'm sure I got all the dates wrong. Yeah. But they, so they own the power thing. And that's why they could, they needed that because they were making wine and making brandy. Okay. So and growing asparagus. Let's not leave asparagus out of it because that just right. is solid. Well, I mean, yeah, it's asparagus. Uh, speaking important. of, do you guys want, uh, I didn't give you guys dump buckets or spit cups. Would you like either? We're, you make good wine. We're totally yeah, fine. We're good. We'll just okay. limit ourselves. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, speaking of asparagus, um, let's talk about this first wine that we're drinking here. <laughs> uh, so uh, we make, um, we like Sauvignon Blanc a lot, right? Um, and I, um, I would say that over my lifetime of drinking wine by gallons of wine, I've drank more Sauvignon Blanc than anything else. A lot of it love comes from obviously the style of Sauvignon Blanc, right? That crisp, acidic, sweet, sour, savory finish, right? To me, that's like... Such a great, refreshing just yep. drink, right? And when you mix in wine, right, it's even better. And so started at uh, Kenwood, right? Always loved Sauvignon Blanc. It's one of Mike Lee's great, um, great wines that he made there. Um, and then my wife, Sarah, and I, um, when she was at UC Davis, and then Joseph Phelps, there was a lot of Sauvignon Blanc making and drinking. And we started our own brand. This uh, We started making wine in 1996. And in 1990. 
eight was our first vintage of Sauvignon Blanc. Um, and uh, so it's just been something we love and uh, we geek out on Sauvignon Blanc. We farm, th- we buy grapes from 38 different vineyards across the state of California. Wow. A bunch of them are organically farmed. Um, two of them went into this wine. So this is a 2022 Sauvignon Blanc from San Ynez Valley that were, that the grapes were farmed organically and certified. So we made a thousand cases of this as a test uh, for the guys at Whole Foods. And, so, and how much is this on the shelf at Whole Foods? Roughly, it sh- I mean, we all know that wine pricing right. never really equals what we all right. think it does. So it's supposed to be $17. You might find it for $21 or $13.99. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, like, it makes no sense. <laughs> but. Um, so, you know, I, I want to go back a little bit before we get into this. I want to go back a little bit to your dad. Mm-hmm. Because if, if he was, call it the first, like, jump in um was started Montevina or? Yeah. So I uh, worked for my grandfather um, and then was one of the first employees at Sterling with uh, Rick Foreman, wow. Dave Abreu, and uh, Mike Collini right. wow. in 1969 when there was no castle on the hill, right. ski lift to get up there. Right. Uh, and then my mom's dad, uh, Walter, and my dad uh, bought a ranch up in Amador County um, that was 454 acres and uh, about 100 and some odd acres of head prunes and that was planted in 1880-something through 1900. Um, and they started a winery there and planted another 100 acres of vineyards on that ranch that became Montevina started in 1972. Uh, my dad left Montevina when my grandfather bought him out in 1983. And then, um, so that was the original, like, and I always look back to it, like, you know, there's some amazing pictures of my parents as being like good hippies and my brother and I running around, you know, without clothes on in mud in the vineyards right. um, in the 70s. So it was like the ultimate 70s winemaking in Amador County, high octane Zinfandel. Fun fact. Hmm. Our distributor at Montevina in the 70s was Kermit Lynch. Wow. <laughs> so Crazy. It's, it's hard to believe that they uh, carried California wines. Um, and so uh, then he left there in 83, and then he went down to Lawrence Winery in uh, San Luis Obispo. And uh, they changed that brand from Corbett Canyon to, sorry, from Lawrence Winery to Corbett Canyon. Um, and then was there, and then that was 83. And in 85 or 6, then Seagram's hired him because they bought the Coca-Cola wineries. Right. And they hired him to run Monterey Vineyards. Monterey Vineyards from 80, let's call it 6, 7, 8. Uh, and then they promoted him to run their West Coast winery operations. So that was Sterling. Um, there wasn't Mum yet. Um, some other wineries, but it was the the big dominant one was Sterling, and then Monterey mm-hmm. Vineyards, and then he and a guy named Guy Trevaux, that was another Seagram's guy from France. They started Mum Champagne uh, for Seagram's, built the winery. Then my dad left there in '97, um, and uh, as a consultant ever since, helping people get in and out of the wine business. And and it's and it's interesting because your dad. I mean, he does it start to finish, like helps mm-hmm. people find properties, yep. plant the vineyard, build the winery, yep. and help them learn how to make wine or bring help bring in a crew for that, correct? Correct. Yeah, yeah. it's because like for somebody wanting to get into business, help them figure out what they really want and then buy the property, build the, build the dream. Or they're already building the dream, but they don't know how to fill the back end of it. Like, how do we make the wine? Or like, oh, my God, we made wine. Now what do we do? Um, oh, that's what you're gonna so, so he has to come in and kind of do the reality check for yes, these people yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah, times. Reality. Well, and that seems weird to talk about now because, I mean, how often does that happen now where someone says they want to come in, in get into the business? In Napa and Sonoma Valley all the time. And really? I think the outline areas, Amador County is a big one, Central Coast is a big one. I mean, the whole California wine industry, right? If you made a bunch of money selling... I don't know what. No. Um, widgets. Yeah, widgets. Yeah. Widgets and sand or something. And yeah. then, uh, you know, you want to do something fun. And every most people love wine and it's passionate. And you get to live on a ranch and build a winery. And so there's a lot of people that have that dream. That See, I just would have thought that that opportunity was available much more in the past. And now it seems like fewer opportunities for that and more money mm-hmm. um, than ever. Well, I think the real difference is, is that uh, like when we started making our wines in 1996, right, the cost of entry for scrappy young people was right. much lower. Cost of entry today is much higher. Yeah. Um, and so to do what we did now, I mean, I think would be not impossible, but it'd be much more difficult. We were kind of at the, the tail end of inexpensive 
custom crush, inexpensive barrels. I mean, you know, all of it at the but time. There's also a whole demographic and generation now, people who grew up in the tech industry who like started jobs at $300,000 a year and like can afford to live in the Bay Area and are retiring in their mid 40s or getting packages. Even now, like all the, the tech layoffs are getting these huge packages. I'm like, what am I going to do? What's my passion? I love wine. I'm going to go make wine. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it doesn't sound rational that you can buy land at a million dollars an acre, but there's people, you know, in their forties who can, and <laughs> who are just like, we're going to bootstrap it and treat it like tech, which is you go in and you, you know, whatever, blood, sweat and tears. And Hire good Joel's people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So you worked at Kenwood for three years, Wait, but, how years. Did, but how did that happen? So it was, it was, was it your father basically saying, yeah, and, you know, and how did you end up at Kenwood as opposed yeah. to, I mean, your dad was obviously very connected. Mm-hmm. Why Kenwood? Yeah. Because um, he thought Mike would be tolerant of having me work there. Um, <laughs> you know, um, in high school, I didn't really have the ambition to go to You were college. the son Mike never had. Yeah, exactly. And always wanted. <laughs> I, was, I was on loan. Um, so, uh, you know, and I didn't really want to go to college. My the passion was I wanted to work in a winery. Mm. And somehow my dad narrowed down to Mike Lee. And it might have been just they saw each other at a wine tasting. And that was only, yes, he got. Um, but, you know, Sonoma Valley was important. Um, Napa was important to be up north at that time. My dad was uh, running um, Sterling. So he was living part time up here. Um, and it was just like a perfect mixture. I, I, to be honest with you, I, I credit my time at Kenwood as shaping what I have today because it taught me the love of the industry, the outside vineyards the winery stuff and like i still reference back in my mind my time at kenwood it was such an uh, impactful you know 24 months i mean and you were happiest driving the tractor i think as i remember oh yeah like whenever you could find a reason to go out into the vineyard and not clean the drains um you were there and and but that's when you were the happiest i mean and you used to talk about that like that's what you really wanted to do chewy i know you know always loved having you around and um so anyway, it, it, it was a fun time. And and you're right. Mm-hmm. Kenwood was an impactful place. Like, mm-hmm. like we were doing pretty cool stuff. We were making more Sauvignon Blanc than most other people. And um, it, it was it was a cool time. It was a, it was a perfect moment in time, especially yeah. for somebody who was 18 years old who could digest it all and walk around with it. And so, you know, that really shaped my idea of what the wine industry was, shaped my idea of what winemaking was, um, shaped my idea of what could be done. Well, in a small enough place where you can see personal relationships, but also a big enough production probably wise that you could see how, mm-hmm. you know, you can scale a business model, right? Yeah. And we saw environmental disaster that year, 1989, to rain three inches in I September think, 15th. Oh, not yeah. the earthquake you're talking about. <laughs> oh, the earthquake was later, right? Because that right. was October. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we had three inches of rain and then we had an earthquake. Yeah. So yeah, I saw, I saw, I saw it all. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, um, and so the question I had is, was wine, when you, when you were young, was wine part of the conversation? Like at dinner, Mm -hmm. did you guys drink wine? Yeah. Yeah. It was Um, was very, like, it was very wine centric. Um, because I went to high school in Carmel and there was like most dinners included wine or I, I distinctly remember trying to blend, you know, make rosé. Right. Like, you know, we blend a little bit of Zen into some Chardonnay and then you had Rosé and that was always like, you know, fun and goofy and, you know, I guess we're not really supposed to say, but, you know, it was like when you're 16 or 17 and you're screwing around making something that tastes pretty good. Right. Yeah. yeah. So then after that, because I think this is all important to how it shapes kind of what you guys have done with your company is your parents bought the market, Palisades Market Correct. in Calistoga. Us, yeah. So they lent my brother and I $4,000 to buy... An existing grocery store that was going out of business. So basically the four grand bought the inventory and they were just happy to give the lease to somebody else to pay the the monthly rent. So that was my crash course in business. And that was 1993. Um, and uh, that was like, you know, here you guys go. There's uh, not enough money to pay yourself. So you just have to work the whole time to make payroll for the other four employees. Um, and that was, you know, a little wine section, uh, beer uh, bottled waters, a little teeny hippie grocery section, a big produce section, a delicatessen, and here learn quick. Yeah, but it was like, a different delicatessen. Yeah. Well, in the beginning, it was pretty straightforward. But then we learned like, wow, we don't like that potato salad. So let's make better potato salad. But how the hell do you right. make potato salad? It wasn't like you went on to Google and like, <laughs> I want German potato salad. I had to go rip it off somewhere else. Right. So it was very informative and it was great. And that's how I learned about selling wine because I'd have these wine guys come by. 
it was a guy who worked for a distributor named Kelly. And I'd be like, hey, I think I can trust you. Explain to me this. Like, how do I mark it up? But if I buy it for 10, I sell it for 15. Is right. that like all of them? They always put five bucks on. He's like, right. no, it's not the way it works. And so <laughs> it was it was a lot of those conversations. And we realized quickly what you bought. If it didn't sell, you were stuck with that inventory. If you had too many employees on, you couldn't make payroll. Um, and, and was your dad over your shoulder or he no. was probably busy, right? No, like, he was busy. He was running Seagram's West Coast Wine Division. So, yeah. uh, no, it was like figured out on your own. My mom worked with us. She was the cheesemonger. Right. Um, not really the best in customer service. Sometimes we get racked <laughs> on their fingers. Like, don't touch the cheese. Um, cheese Nazi. Um, and then, um, you know, we kind of, we grew up in that business. And so that was 1993, 1996. Um, 95, I met Sarah. 96, Sarah and I started making wine. 97, we got married. 99, we opened up the restaurant, which at the time was Taylor's Refresher, but then we changed the name to God's Roadside 10 years later. 2002, three, we started Three Thieves with Charles Beeler and Roger Scamania. Yeah, okay, yeah. and we got we to gotta stop. So, talk yeah, about slow that. the roll there for a second. Where, where did you meet your wife, number one? Yeah, uh, I met my wife um, in town, um, in town of Calistoga. I bought tomatoes from her mom for our produce section. Um, and she always said, I have that loveliest daughter. You should really meet her. And for think, real? Yeah, and I was thinking like, no way, lady. <laughs> uh, and then uh, she was telling Sarah, I met the loveliest boy. You should meet mom. I have enough friends. Um, and then we met, they were at a, there was a restaurant called Catahoula, which was the happening place, Jan Bombs restaurant in, in, uh, Calistoga. And I met her one night in there and ran home, showered. So I didn't look like a bum. Went back in, um, tried to strike up a conversation, actually got somewhere. Remember, there was no texting. There was no, uh, what do you call it? Dating app. Right. Yeah. So I had to, I had to leave it all on the table there and I got a date out of it. I got a call back more important. Right. Wait, and she, so she was just working for her mom at the... Uh, no, I'm sorry. At that, she'd gone to UC Davis for viticulture. Ah, she was okay. the enologist at Joseph yeah. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> so then we were boyfriend-girlfriend. A year later, I convinced her. I said, hey, you know how to make wine. You went to school for it. I know how to, I think. My dad works at Sterling. My roommate, Rudy Zudima, works at a custom crush place. We can make some wine. She's like, what? Are you crazy? And then I had those credit cards that came in the mail and they used to come with a check in the 90s. So I paid for the first three, vin two really, I think really the first two vintages with the checks that came. You're not joking. Them. No, everything you're not supposed to do. 20% interest. Yeah, it's amazing. It's well, okay. <laughs> okay, so what was the first thing that you decided to buy? And, and just get it all out on the table. What you guys are talking about is a business model that a lot of people follow now, but maybe wasn't the the most popular thing at the time, which is don't own a thing, buy fruit from other people, use a crush pad facility where you can put in work orders, mm -hmm. have the wine bottled, and then somehow find a distributor and get them to sell the wine because who the hell are you? Right. Exactly. Right. You just nailed the whole business model. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> so what do you, better than I do. So <laughs> then what do you decide to buy at first and say, hey, let's... Uh, let's so I've, I've always loved Zinfandel. Yeah. Um, I grew up on a ranch head Zinfandel. At the time, Turley, like it is today, was just this like amazing, iconic brand. At Kenwood, we uh, made some incredible Zinfandel from some incredible ranches. Um, and, uh, to me, that was like the, the Holy grail of red wine when you're 24 years old, right? What else do you want to drink? High octane Zinfandel, uh, from California. Right. And so, um, uh, the best place I knew to go and buy Zinfandel was mm -hmm. up in Amador County. There was a grape grower named Tom Dillion that had this incredible vineyard on Chendo school road. Uh, so I called Tom in the old days of like, you know, called him four times until I got the answering machine, left a message, got buy some fruit. And he said, all right, I'll sell you five tons. Um, and then I had to ask like, how much will that be? <laughs> right. So then I rented a truck, um, and, uh, with our controller, who's on the other side of this wall 28 years ago, and she drove me down the rental truck place and I rented a flatbed truck and borrowed some bins from a friend of mine's, uh, custom crush facility and drove up to Amador County and when we determined the fruit was ready and that was the beginning of it. So wait, had, but had Sarah ever made Zinfandel before? Yeah, um, at Gloria Frere, she had made Zin. Um, she made a lot of Syrah when she worked down in Australia as an intern. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, at Joseph Phelps, I made Zin. So she had huh. seen it, but, uh, you know, I mean, how hard could it be? Right. <laughs> Just grapes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's from Amador. Yeah. Like, you know, 
can't screw that up, right? Well, then where was it? So where were you making the wine at first? Uh, there was a custom crush facility called The Inissary, and mm-hmm. um, sure. our yeah. friend Rudy Zudima was making wine there for. I can't remember the name of the brand. It'll come back to me in a minute. Yeah. That you have to slice that in later. Um, but sorry, go ahead, Bart. No, I was say was that the area where Chris Dearden was also? At yeah, yeah, Chris Dearden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Chris. Chris was the GM of the, uh, right. the facility. Yeah, right. And Chris just, I'm working on getting him on the show because he just opened up his winery down in Carneros. Oh, wow. Right on. Yeah. That's going to be the worst cuts and crush client ever. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So you guys are making the wine. You got five tons. So you're, I mean, that's a fair amount of wine to sell, right? And so what is- 300 cases. I should have brought a bottle of it. It's still actually 96 tastes great. Well, I was just thinking- I didn't know we'd be tasting wine. I, I guess I should have assumed- well, then Phil just Phil just gave me three bottles of Kenwood too, and I think one was an '89 Zin. There was like a '91 Merlot. I, yeah, I Jack just, London. Yeah, I'm uh, so wine. wishing I would have brought those. But so you're thinking, okay, where are we going to sell this wine? Or did you have some idea of zero? You know, honestly, like I was more passionate about making it, and I had the, my little yeah. grocery store, and I could have gone through 300 cases over like five really? years or okay. something, right? So, I wasn't. <laughs> I, that was never the focus, right? My focus was is I wanted the wine, and you know, I also thought we'd have a a, a brand name, right? We'd be something fancy like Quintessa or something yeah. like that, right? Um, but by the time a year later that I was wanting to make the second vintage, I needed to bottle it, so I needed a label. I'd filled out all the ABC alcohol beverage control paperwork um, as Joel got wines, but I figured, you know, there'd be a DBA, but by the time I needed a bottle that I didn't have time and a lady named Tina Focara that worked at Chuck house design in Santa Rosa, she shopped in our grocery store and I was like, Tina, I need a label, like my name on the top, the variety down there. And I scribbled down nine and a half by 11 piece of paper. And then I like all the government shit on the bottom. And there it is. That's pretty right? much still it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's very close to the original label. Um, <laughs> and uh, as simple as it sounds, right? It was just like out of pure desire and need, I got exactly what I needed, which was like yeah. the perfect thing. And then uh, Suzanne Chambers shopped in our grocery store um, and we bought wine from Chambers and Chambers. Um, and our sales guy was Dave Dennis. I don't know if you guys know Dave. Sure. Um, and so Dave <laughs> um, was working also for John Whitlofer at All Seasons Wine Shop. And I was learning about wine, buying wine there when I scratched together $27 for something cool. And then um, Suzanne agreed to sell the first vintage. And then the second vintage, we got a lot of press from the Wine Spectator. Um, and it was a really good vintage. 97, like all those wines were like rip-eating great for five yeah. years. Yeah. Um, right. The other way. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then that just started the snowball effect of like, oh my God, this works. And then there was some guy that uh, was working in our wine section at the store as we got bigger. And uh, we had a little office over in an old train car next door, the one that John Charles Bosset Mm -hmm. owns now. And this guy came over. He's like, hey, Joel, that's our wine guy. He's like, there's some important wine guy over there. And he wants to know where you are. I'm like, I'm not here. Just tell him I'm not here. He's like, nah, but I think he knows something. And I think he's important. I'm like, ah, just get rid of him. So I go over and this guy's quizzing me. He's like, oh, I'm a distributor in New York. I'm like, oh, great. I have a distributor in New York already. Uh, and I didn't know I have anything. I'm like, it's called uh, and the only place I'd ever heard of was Sherry Lehman. I'm like, it's Sherry Lehman. He's like, actually that's a store. store. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, but they, they, they employ it, right? And I had no idea. I just wanted to try to get rid of it. And it turned out to be Michael Skernick. Um, great, great importer, great, great distributor, great guy. The whole, all the Skernicks are amazing. And um, so anyhow, they sold our wine, um, did the first vintage. I think the first vintage we shipped them, they ordered the 97 and I shipped them the 98. Um, so like perfectly on par. Yeah. Um, and then we became fast friends over the next couple decades. And uh, yeah, yeah, that was really like between Chambers and Skernick, it's what taught me that the brand had some value in retail and in restaurants and our wine yeah. quality was more interesting at our price point than our competitive set because of Sarah's winemaking um, that she was had gone to school for and was learning at Phelps. And, and as she grew in her talent, right, it just benefited our wines. And so... So, but, but your wines have always been focused on good pricing, high quality. Mm-hmm. Um, you've never tried to be the Napa Valley cab guy or, I mean, you've always kind of left this as a, mostly California Appalachians, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, some specific things here and there. Um, and I mean, earlier on, I mean, was that always the laser focus yeah. that it was, we, we're I not going to. I love value. 
right? And I always right. thought that, uh, you know, there was so much great wine being made. And I knew that like in the early days of Ridge in the early nineties, when I had the grocery store, those Ridge wines were about 18 bucks for like Geyserville. And man, I always thought that was like, that is rip roaring, amazing wine for 18 bucks, right? And so to me, there was that value play was always something so important. Um, and I loved going to Kermit Lynch and like, you know, you'd go down there and there'd be all the like the, you know, $14 Provence Rosé and you're like, oh my God, I'm stealing this thing. And so to me, there was always a value. And I always learned that, you know, when they got over 25 bucks um, in our retail section, they sold, but not very often. <laughs> and then... You know, like we would bring in, you know, I, like all the examples where the value stuff is what just fascinated me. Yeah. But, it, but was it, you guys started doing that because you were just able to buy fruit that was less expensive and you found that that was a good way for you to do business? Or was it, that was actually the thought process from the beginning was let's get something at the end of the day. You knew the price point that you wanted to hit on the shelf. Um, I knew the price point. I never costed a wine probably the first 10 years. Wow. So I knew that where I wanted to be like 18 for cap, 15 for Zin, you know, 13 for SB. Like, honestly, there was in my mind was that those were the price points that I wanted to be at. And what's crazy is today we're still in those same price points. And, and, know, and I want the costs have gone through the roof. Yeah. And, and, and I want, I mean, the other thing that I think is important here is this is not like, you're not just going out and buying bulk wine. No, you're, not, you're not contracting exactly. with these different growers. 196 growers for this vintage. Yeah. And that's crazy. Yeah. And, and, and then you're taking delivery of them at your own custom crush places with your own staff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you have, you have, you've, well, you've obviously picked those custom crush places mm-hmm. for a reason, but you have a staff member there, you know, keeping an yeah. eye on things. It's not you driving all over the state no, no. or the country. No, it's actually, Bart, it's kind of fun because like, you know, for maybe some of the listeners, right. They won't appreciate this, but like in a production standpoint, it's really the early day model of as we grew, we didn't get bigger tanks. We didn't get bigger in a vineyard. We just added more vineyards on and we had more fermenters at Custom Crush. So we make wine at seven wineries right now in the state of California. Um, Custom Crush places, all amazing, amazing staffs. And we've worked with them for a long time. And then we're a team of 27 people um, that all we do is make wine and grow grapes, right? And so we're spread across the state. We have amazing winemaking team. female dominant um my wife sarah and megan and jill and elizabeth um are the core there and then dustin who you guys probably met on the way in he's running a lot of small lot fermentation taryn hansen uh, from cal poly she runs our uh, our you know grower rep viticulture department um so we have this amazing dream team and then some of the guys uh that worked with sarah joseph phelps back in the 90s um run our cellar department that oversee the custom crush facilities and we actually have a brick and mortar winery um down in uh yontville on hoffman lane um and then um other fun stuff in that is is we have a partnership with trincaro family states right they make like 20 million cases of wine and they do all of our distribution marketing and accounting so the dream in our industry is to not deal with distribution marketing and accounting (laughs) and somehow we got the dream proposal and we have this great joint venture and so we're just this solo little team now i go out and i sell wine um we have some support staff um in marketing but realistically all we focus on and that's why you know we're a big brand right make wine a lot of places all over the state up in oregon washington argentina south france um and all those is run because all we focus on is wine 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 we don't worry about i mean if we were if we didn't have the partnership with trinker we'd probably be 150 people and be spread through hr meetings does trinker have any input on the winemaking no no um but we get to use some of their assets like there is no better bottling line than like one of their huge brand new german crone bottling lines i mean they have four of them i mean like you can't you can't rent those things you can't use them and they're it's like a it's like seeing somebody go by on a Rolls Royce and you're like, oh, I'd like to drive that. And they're like, oh, hey, go take it for the weekend. Right. <laughs> you know, so yeah. we get to use their assets. They have an amazing uh, facility here in downtown St. Helena that we do a lot of work at. Um, another great one in Paso Robles, um, a big facility where all the bottling is done out in the Lodi area. Um, but we get to use their big boy toys, I like to yeah. say. <laughs> yeah. And they're amazing because it's a family-owned operation. So it's not like you're dealing with, uh, you know, not, there's nothing wrong with the big guys, right? Um, but, you know, it's... So one one answer is one that story. partnership. What led to three thieves? Oh no, three thieves was just three jackasses. Like, okay, I mean we were. Um, uh, you want me to go through the three thieves? Thing? Well, and I want you to talk touch on the tetra boxes also oh, yeah, because yeah. you guys were really doing that before. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
how long ago was that when you guys first launched that? Um, so I'm we just launched making you talk in, how old you are, really. Yeah, yeah. Is. So we launched that in 2004. Uh, but when we launched it, we knew somebody else was coming out in front of us. So the first one was just Photoshopped. Um, so we just Photoshopped it because we couldn't figure out how to make it correctly yet. We made that first vintage in Italy because we couldn't get it done here in the States. Uh, so the first wines were the 2003 vintage of, uh, ready, Trebbiano. Right. You've had a lot of Trebbiano? Right. Yeah, we, it's the, the, the first bandit was yeah, yeah, Trebbiano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they exploded and they leaked and they turned yellow. And yeah, it was not a good. But anyhow, <laughs> it was kind of fun. Um, <laughs> but uh, so in, well, in, the, in the late 90s and two, early 2000s, I knew Charles Beeler because he was selling his family's uh, wines from Provence called uh, Chateau Rutas. Um, and so I'd see this crazy guy in a pink tuxedo at the chambers events. I'm like, I got to know this guy. So Charles and I knew each other. Charles knew this guy named Roger Scomenio, who we thought owned Home Depot. Turned out he didn't own Home Depot. Um, he owned Home Store. Wasn't kind of the same thing. Um, so we figured he would finance it. Um, and uh, so the, the two of those guys and another winemaker that we all know, we're going to start something called Three Kings. Um, and we had lunch together. I'm like, well, that sounds pretty dumb. Um, I want to make jug wine. And they're like, we like jug wine. Why don't we call it Three Thieves? And then that was literally that lunch at Hawthorne Lane in San Francisco became wow. Three Thieves. See, I thought it was Three Thieves because you get the steal from the... I thought it was Three Thieves because you guys got the steal from the best vineyards that Trincaro had. Uh, no, but that's a really good way of saying it. Um, that's probably some, <laughs> that's some marketing. That may or may not be something I heard Charles right. Beeler say once. No, but, but uh, <laughs> honestly, yeah, that sounds like a Roger actually. <laughs> so, uh, what, what it really was is, um, it was a downturn in the market. Remember, uh, 01, 11, right? Yeah. Uh, luxury, everything went, you know, bottom down. Um, and, uh, the bulk wine market in Napa, I shouldn't say bulk, the wine market, the great market in Napa, Sonoma, um, just tank cratered. And so you could buy amazing Napa Valley cab for like $8 a gallon or less. Um, people just had way too much inventory. The dot-com boom had popped. Um, and so there was just this amazing opportunity to be able to go and buy bulk wine. So we were bottling uh, Napa cab, California Zin from amazing wineries, making these blends. And putting in a one liter jug and selling it for 10 bucks. But when you're doing that, are you thinking that that's going to be a daily wine drinker or an everyday consumer? Are you thinking that I come from the restaurant business? So when I see those sizes of bottles, I'm thinking cooking wine. I'm thinking the, you know, this is what we have in the kitchen to cook with. We're always looking for a great deal on what they call Chablis and Burgundy. Yeah. Um, um, you know, it was such a novelty thing. We had these bright neon labels on them. It was like a bright orange was a Zin, a bright blue was the Napa Cab. That it was, it was such a novelty item. And it was like the jug shop in San Francisco. The buyers there was Chuck. And so like they crushed it. We had amazing distribution. I mean, we're selling jug wine with Chambers and Chambers, like a luxury right. wine wholesale. And so we had this incredible distribution. We had um, a novelty item that was like inexpensive and amazing. And it was it was like Milli Vanilli. It was like a, a flash in the pan. It lasted right. three years, but it got us almost bought by Constellation. Then we partnered with Trincaro. Um, and then that led from jug wine to Tetra Pak wine to international wine, sourced wine to all these private labels. It was pretty in incredible. And where did the showdown come in? Because the showdown was, what, right? Do I have the name right? Yeah. Or the, or the show, show. The, the show. show, but you know, different packaging. I mean, it used that kind of um, uh, early cowboy. American cowboy art. Yeah. Um, and how did that fit into um, this? And the art was Hat Show Print Press out of Nashville, right? Right. Um, and that's an amazing, like, if you guys are ever in Nashville, you got to go to Hatch uh, and see also woodblock lettering that are made into posters. That's where all the posters have been done for the music mm. industry for decades. So um, that was another inspiration because the guys, uh, Charles and Raj, right? They, Roger, they love the art from there. So that wine was created by the art, the posters which led to the label, which led to then like, hey, Joel, let's make some wine. <laughs> I mean, that's how that project started. And we launched it at Aspen uh, Food and Wine in like probably 06, 07. Yeah, something like that. Wearing like ridiculous cowboy wear and hats and you know, <laughs> like as, about as, as goofy as possible. So what was the most popular wine you think for the first 10 years of Joel got? Was it the Sauvignon Blanc? Uh, no, is is uh, Cabernet by far. We still are more. No. We we probably get more press on Sauvignon Blanc. No. Um, we sell more and are more known for making Cabernet. 
like yesterday I was in, I was in Phoenix and Scottsdale for the day selling wine and it was all Cabernet conversation constantly, but everybody's drinking Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> it's a crazy, crazy. And it, it was hot down there too. Okay. So on that note to kind of go current currently, you know, we see headlines, you know, there's no Sauvignon Blanc available. Mm-hmm. Sauvignon Blanc's huge. Joel's taking it all. Joel's taking it all. Um, Bart he, sold it to him. <laughs> do you do you do you do you agree with that? I mean, are you seeing your Sauvignon Blanc sales solid and and looking to expand? Is Cabernet still king out Cabernet, there? I mean, you're Cabernet, in the marketplace yeah, yeah. more than probably anybody we have on the show. Yeah. I mean, yeah what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, if you just look at the sales data nationally, right? So Cabernet's still king, right? But there's other varieties coming up that are really pushing. I mean, red blends for a long time, you know, the inexpensive, slightly right. sweet reds. Those those really took from the Zinfandel market. Um, and Zinfandel is a much smaller category now. Uh, if you think about white wines, I mean, the, the amazing thing that Kendall Jackson did for our whole industry of getting people drinking Chardonnay from California, that has spurred off into coastal Chardonnays. It spurred off into this more un style of uh, Chardonnay that's out there now. Um, and then Sauvignon Blanc, right? I mean, you know, it's been around forever and a lot of people made it really weird as Fumé Blanc and barrel fermented and oxidized. But with the rise of New Zealand, right, um, you know, New Zealand made all this, I believe, in California realize like, hey, our consumer wants something that's more acidic, fruit forward, savory, texture, mineral, Sancerre like, right, um, in a blend. And I like to think California is a great piece somewhere between New Zealand and Sancerre, right? They, you get the green, like amazing grassiness um, out of Monterey County, but we get the minerality out of like, you know, Lake and San Ynez Valley and we get this big oily Sauvignon Blanc here in Napa and Sonoma's like bubble gum, right? So there's was there's that a shot. I think that was a shot. No, 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 it is. But it's like I mean, Russian River Sauvignon Blanc's amazing, right? right. It's yeah. like fruit driven. Yeah. I mean, it's the yeah. dream. Yeah. I mean, I wish I had hundreds of acres of it, right? right. Could you imagine? Right. Um, you imagine what it would cost now. Uh, but so I to answer your question, I think that the Sauvignon Blanc uh, trend right now, you know, it's it's one of the few varieties in the whole index that's really growing. It's growing at plus fifteen percent, whereas yeah. the whole category is down four, right? Right. So we got a consumer that likes it. We should all be focused on it. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc is in short, short supply. Like I said, we uh, you know we buy from thirty eight different vineyards across the state. Um, Long term relationships buy a lot of Sauvignon Blanc. Hopefully, all that makes our blends every year. Right. We're constantly looking for more. We're constantly doing pre-plant contracts. We're constantly um, encouraging people to plant more. Now, the problem is, if we all owned vineyards, we're going to get paid more for Cabernet. That's easier to grow, right. and you get more per ton. Right. So, what incentivizes a grower to plant Sauvignon Blanc? That, that's a, that's a conversation that's hard. Um, so, you know. That's the reality of Sony Blanc market. And there's a, like every variety, there's a lot of great stuff growing in California. There's also a lot of stuff that kind of go like, eh, maybe it's not so great. No. Right. Right. What what was the first vineyard? Stuff that smells and tastes like onions. (laughs) I mean, there's a place for it. A little bit's good, but a lot is weird. Um, Go ahead, Mike. What what was the first vineyard that you actually purchased? Oh, purchase, purchase. No. Um, is in an area called Borden, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't mean anything to you. It's uh, uh, as you go up into the foothills above Lodi, you go up several hundred feet in elevation, and there's these big rolling uh, alluvial fans as the glaciers pushed all the you know dirt off and rock off the Sierras, and it stopped at the the base of the Central Valley, and it's this huge boulders. Um, it's like Chateau Neuf, right? It's all these uh, river boulders, um, and so we have a 200 acre vineyard there. And was it was already planted when you nope, took it over? No, no. So you we, bought we, the property, planted it, yeah. Brought a whole team in there, and and what is it planted to? Cab Cab Franc, Cab Cab Franc, and that's something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and why? Um, because to be able to make eighteen dollar Cabernet in California, you got to blend. Remember, that's from seven counties, right? Yeah. So you know, I mean, I can list them, but I bore you guys. But you know, we need some some fruit that we control the cost of. Yeah. And you know, if you buy it on the valley floor, it just doesn't have the same texture, profile, tannin, structure, sweet fruit, right? And so we needed something that we could control it. You know, we get like four tons of the acre out there, and um, you know, it's like super concentrated, amazing. Uh, the temperature shift there is pretty dramatic because you're up at high enough elevation that we get the cold wind or cold air draining out of the Sierras, but we get the warm temperatures of Central Valley. Uh, soil structure is really good and we have a lot of water. We have a 2,400 gallon minute well out there. It's crazy. Wow. 
So, um, and then we also have them over in like on Calistoga Road, overlooking Santa Rosa. You know where the TV tower is. That's right. a, mm-hmm. that's a, one of our favorite vineyards there. Um, just real quick on these two Sauvignon Blancs, the uh, made from organic grapes is all San Inez Valley. Correct. Um, this is a California Appalachian. What, what are the what is it about you, these two wines that you know you either that you love? Well, what I love is our California one because then you get to see the influence of having Monterey in it, which gives you that New Zealand texture. You get Napa Sonoma, which are heavier, oilier, more fruit driven. Right. You get Lake County, which is like mineral based style, much hotter. Daytime, but colder temperatures, volcanic rock, San Yanez, which we love. A majority of our Sauvignon comes from San Yanez. Um, you also get kind of some of the cool Delta fruit. So by having these six different counties, it, I think it's a more complete wine in the California. Um, the organic, we just wanted to do as a test to see what does the consumer think of an organically grown. Right. I mean, it's a mouthful of rocks, right? Organically grown grapes made into Sauvignon Blanc. I, I don't know how you're supposed to say it. So everybody would just call it organic. But I want to see how that does. Um, like, what will the consumer think of that? It, it might be an introductory closeout, right? It might right. be here for 15 minutes and we did a thousand cases and voila. Right. So but you're not doing I, it with all the wines. It's no, no. Right now it's just that. No, but there's organically grown grapes in almost every single one of our wines because there's so many vineyards that are grown that way. Yeah. Plus, we live in California, right, where there's not that many, you know, I mean, smoke taints, worst things happen to our industry in a long time. Right. So... So where where do you I'm sure you guys have data on this. Where do most of the wines go in the United States that you make? Are they are California, most of them California, sold in California? California centric, right? Uh right. where California is our biggest market, followed by kind of the big four, right? So the big four are Texas, Florida, New York, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, I mean, that's just that's natural wine data as I think what's it called indexing. Yeah. That's in general, those are the biggest population states, the biggest wine drinking states. And then you're, I'm assuming you have a wine club. Nope, no wine club. We so, got rid of that um, probably in like, uh, just for say conversation, say about 08 or so. Okay. So how much do you sell direct to consumer? None, zero. Wait a minute. You have a, you have a tiny little vineyard that was what? originally owned by the- Leslie Rudd or oh, owned yeah, by yeah. the Martinelli's. Edge, Edge Hill, yeah, yeah, Edge Hill. Um, so what are you doing with that? Fruit. Uh, we're not doing anything with it right now. We uh, so that was that was kind of neat because uh, Leslie Rudd uh, planted that with uh, Paul Draper um, mm-hmm. from Ridge. Is the story I'm told. Um, you know, I, I wasn't there, so I don't know. But it's so it's a uh, Syrah, um, Petite Syrah, Grenache, and Mavedra. Uh, okay. um, and there's a little bit of Alicante. And there's like six Alicante vines. Right. It's about all you need in that size. Uh, it's a five acre vineyard. So that that's from we uh, fermented those grapes last year. Wait, but what are you doing with it? Um, it'll come out on a label at some point. We're trying to see if we can get the Bart Hansen trademark. Um, <laughs> we, we, to be honest with you, we don't know exactly what we'll do with those grapes from that property. I'm going to be in Edge Hill. They have historically called it Mixed Blacks. Mm-hmm. Um, we own the Edge Hill trademark, but we're thinking that we'll come up with a, you know, um, like a sub label that'll be like the super creative stuff. We go to amazing Grenache, Sarah's dad's ranch out in Knights Valley. Um, we also have Syrah out there. We have, we have all sorts of great cherry wines around. We, and that's all at a higher price point ultimately. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Yeah. But not too high. I mean, like I don't want to, I'm not want to play in the really expensive stuff. So, so sorry, I'm maybe I'm not understanding. So you're going to make those wines, but then they'll go out in the distribution network and oh, yeah. be sold at, Maybe different stores than some of the other wines. Hey, man, I hope you find it over in Oliver's, right? You live in Sonoma? I live in Katadi and we have an Oliver's, yeah. So hopefully you'll be buy some Edge Hill red wine blend uh, over there that is Zinfandel-based uh, okay. in two years. Okay. So, because I, I, Edge I Hill's, that's a fairly new property for you guys, right? It's old. It's old. It's three-story gravity-fed stone winery in Napa County, 1864. We just bought it at the very end of 21. Okay. So so it's new to you yeah, guys. Yeah, new to us. Um I, th- I was going to ask you to talk oh, by the about Martinelli's the property, but I point. think he did. <laughs> Is, was it the Martinelli family that owned it originally? Uh, no, it was Martini. Ah, Damn it. Close, Martin. but not quite. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it was originally built um, by uh, General Keys that ran Fort Mason um, in 1864, huh. three-story gravity-fed winery, um, and in 1880... A gentleman named, and I can't remember his name right now, but he patented the um, vacuum still, um, and he built uh, distillery number 209 in the country there. 
Um, so there's a stone distillery there. There's a gin brand that we didn't buy, but it's called 209. I was going to say that that's has nothing that to do was, with it. Okay. That's where that was started. Um, huh. and, uh, so there's a stone distillery. We should, I wish we had time to go over there. You guys would love it. It's, Next time. Yeah. Yeah. Is that um, all still I, intact? That's all yeah, still yeah, intact. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately after this, I'm going on a great zoom call to talk about, uh, something else, but, uh, uh, if you guys are still <laughs> around in an hour, I could drive you guys over there. It's, it's, it's like literally Disneyland. I've just seen Disney. video of it. It looks like a beautiful spot. And then everything is kind of go play or I don't know if you've changed the way mm-hmm. you're okay. Uh, no, no, growing. no, no, no. So there's a, uh, this beautiful big stone winery, um, yeah. built in 1864, the Rudd's owned the property. They bought it from the martinis in 1999. They did an amazing job. Literally stone by stone, rebuilding the stone winery, three story tall, huge thing. Um, looks like, uh, you know, gray stone over here or Farniente. Uh, and then the distillery, the same thing. They rebuilt it stone by stone. Uh, we got an underground uh, cave uh, winery there that was uh, drilled in behind the stone building. So wait, are you, gonna, you planning on moving into this place? No. I, why would you want to live in a winery? <laughs> Bad habits. I mean, it sounds there. like it's a pretty cool property. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. It's one yeah. of the great properties in uh, Napa Valley. But it's completely functioning? All those things that you were just talking about are functioning? Uh, so the winery, we are in the final phases of finishing the project of the winery. So what has to happen huh. there is like the refrigeration has to go in. Yeah. Uh, the plaster is still yet to be finished on the walls in the cave. I think that's about it. Uh, okay. Eric, we got to buy an air compressor. So that'll be a place that people can actually come and visit and yes. taste wine. Yes. Nice. Okay. So, yeah, but that's, you know, that's probably five years from now by the time we're ready for that. Right. Cause we got to make all these wines we got to have them already <laughs> there. It's complicated. Right. Um, let's talk about the Grenache that we just opened. Uh, yeah, so this was started in 2010. Uh, this is Chateau Grenache from Maury, uh, south of France. Um, like as if you're driving from, you know, uh, Provence and you're on your way to uh, see a soccer game in Barcelona, you drive right through Perpignan. If you take a right there and you go into the Pyrenees, mm-hmm. um, that's where uh, Maury is. Maury was Grenache planted in the 1800s to make fortified sweet wine. Dave Finney of Prisoner and Orrin Swift and Saldo fame and everything he does. Um, he said, Joel, you got to come to France with me. I found this amazing place with 100-year-old the grass vines <laughs> coming out of the woodwork. So I went over there with him. Uh, we started this in 2019. Shatter is a viticulture term when the wind blows or the rain comes and knocks the flowers off clusters of grapes that are in bloom. Um, and your cluster is now half the size. And so shatter is a term that we we all use in our industry to say that uh, we're missing a bunch of berries on our cluster of grapes. And so Dave thought it was a great name. Then we started making Especially the wine for over there. And then, uh, uh, so Dave still operates over there. He has 300 acres of yeah. Grenache. Um, it's mind boggling ter- territory. He got real excited when he landed there. I mean, I've talked to him about the whole story and you never know what's, what's fact and what's fiction with, um, Dave and his, um, legendary stories, but mm-hmm. yeah, kind of landed at night and then woke up in the morning and yeah. looked out and went, Oh my God. Yeah. Um, and I think the one thing his wife told him was do not do anything without talking to me first. Mm-hmm. And he came home and said, we bought a vineyard. And then he accidentally built a winery. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I mean, the winery is amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's like truly, it's like modern Bordeaux style winery. Yeah. Uh, so anyhow, and then when Dave sold Orrin Swift, Charles Beeler came in and replaced Dave in this project because Dave had too many commitments um, with his Orrin Swift wines. So Charles and I now make the wine over there. Charles Beeler, who makes uh, Beeler Rosé. Yep. Um, um, so he's over in Provence all the time. So he runs a winemaking show over there. And then Dustin on our team here runs the winemaking show here for that. So we ferment it there, stabilize it. No. This is a winery that was built during World War II in the German occupation. No refrigeration. We ship it over here in the winter when it's cold, and then we get it here, and then we put it in barrels. Wait a minute. So that's it's not flying; it's shipping. Shipping, yeah, boat. Okay. Huh. It's a long ride. It's way better than shipping it in glass, right? Environmentally, right? We can you can ship double the amount of wine because glass weighs about as much as the wine in the bottle. Yeah. So environmentally, it's the right way to, get to do it. You remember waterbeds from the 70s, 80s, right? I have think, think Think about a really big waterbed in a refrigerated yeah. shipping container, and they're like four feet deep, and that's how we ship them over. Okay. Wait, and so still doing it that way? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay. so how many cases of this year? Oh, Roughly. I should know. Uh, 2,500 
I'm going to say 27 something in this. I, I mean, I, yeah, I was more, is it like 2,000 cases or is it 20,000 cases? No, 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 no. We'd love to, we'd love to have it be 20,000 cases. There's just not enough grapes. Yeah. Yeah. Enough grapes available. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, Dave owns most of the grapes. Right. So it's really what will Uncle Dave spare for us? <laughs> Get Dave pretty loaded and be like, hey, Dave, no, last night, man, you said. <laughs> it's delicious. Thanks. It's it's very Grenache. I feel like I should have been more prepared for you guys to come here. I mean, James probably put in the footnote of the text. Like, we're going to taste. We should probably go to Edge Hill. We should probably go to the winery. Damn it. I didn't know about Edge Hill or I'd have brought more cameras. But I'll be back. I, th I thought we were talking about skateboarding. Uh, we might have been. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> or mountain biking. No mountain biking. Mountain yeah. biking. Are, we, are you guys mountain bikers? But Bart is a biker. No, not Bart myself. Bart and I are doing chef cycle in a few weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, next time you guys come over, let's go mountain biking. Yeah. We have a crazy to. network of trails here in Santa Lena. Santa Lena is some of the best mountain biking in Napa County. A lot of, unknown, a lot of unknown trails from what I hear. Yeah. yeah oh. Like unadvertised trails. Yeah. Right. And wait, we heard rumors. I, that you and um, Gary from Eric Garrett, formerly of Cliff Bar, are mm -hmm. doing some trail networks here. Uh, Gary is an amazing person, um, has done amazing things along with a couple other people here in town for donating some of the money to create some of the incredible mountain biking that's uh, uh, the county parks. Cool. cool. So, yeah, Dan's Wild Ride being the king. If you guys haven't rode in Dan's, it's like probably the best thing in Napa County. Okay. Oh. Cool. It's it's about as good as mountain biking trails come. All right. Well, what time is your Zoom call? Three fifteen. It was at three, but I keep pushing it off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So then, tell us what what are some things out there that you want to do that you maybe haven't had the opportunity to, or grapes that you kind of want to play around with, or other businesses maybe that you want to get in. That you're well, not in. I think what's exciting in the wine business right now is is uh, you know when you look at who's in school to learn about wine, right? There's a lot of young people getting into fermentation and, and viticulture, right? Fermentation sciences, science. So I, I think we I think we're on the verge of another wave of great creativity yeah. um, in today's world of being able to make labels um, you know on your laptop while you're screwing around or you know probably on your phone I wouldn't know how that works but so I think we're in for a wave of creativity that we haven't seen in our industry in a while and I, I think you know our industry needs it right you know wine's going backwards a little bit right we're down four points and so we need more exciting things to bring in a younger consumer and I think that that younger winemaker and younger grape grower are the people that are going to help us do that um, so I'm excited to see what comes out in that. Um, so did, did, sorry to interrupt, but mm -hmm. so did you guys never jumped into the seltzers or any of that sort of thing? No. So you, I mean, so the thought of younger people coming mm -hmm. in and figuring out their own destiny, it kind of goes along with what you're there saying, right? There is a right? bandit seltzer, right? Yeah, we did a, through Trinkera, we did a bandit seltzer in the Northwest. Okay. So yes, I stand corrected. But, but it's um, that not. That was, wasn't really what. That was that was a marketing department. That was just. I was more just wondering if it still existed. The no, 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 no. But it's not something on your on no. your radar. Not, you're not you're on still ours. thinking wine, wine. wine. Yeah, and look, it's exciting, right? People, I love that people drink rosé, right? I mean, rosé is like what we should all drink on Sunday afternoon. Right? It's like like a beautiful, sweet, sour, savory, salty thing. Sauvignon Blanc is exciting that that's growing. Aromatic whites. Um, I love to see more red blends out there that are not just sweet because I think that can drive in the consumer. I love sparkling wine. It's really exciting to see that there's so much attention to sparkling. As we all know, sparkling is expensive to make. So that's a little bit of the downside with sparkling. The other thing that I think will help save our industry, right, is is that, um, you know, there's an exploratory thing when you go in the wine department and it's so big, right? And there's a lot of retailers who are figuring out how money can be made in the wine department. And so, you know, hopefully we continue that experience of the wine steward, the bigger wine departments, great displays, turning people onto cool little wines. And that's that's what drives creativity and, and new customers in our, in our business. Because yeah, you are sort of, um, you're in competition, especially for the younger consumers with sort of this natty or natural wine movement where people are looking for bottles of, of wine that are around the $20 range, mm -hmm. um, that are a little bit more experimental. They play around with more unique varietals, 
to and you know bart um and myself the the winer that i work for we're not sort of in that same realm we're in the higher price mm-hmm. point but you're kind of you're kind of going up against um that market when you're yep. fighting for younger consumers yeah and you look i mean the natural wine thing i think we're all out of an era of the wine business that like we don't understand no sulfur in wine because it turns brown and yellow and like ah well that's like everything we we're taught that's wrong and yeah. I'm not a big natural wine fan. I'm not saying that it's wrong in any sort of way, right? But I, I just like when you have an amazing glass of Sauvignon Blanc or Coastal yeah. Chardonnay or something like that, right? That's like to me the pinnacle. Um, I'm interested in those flavors and not in that muted flavor that a lot of these wines are made right. in or the orange wine. And having to explain those flavors. Like why can't it just taste delicious? Why does there have to be a discussion about it? Mm-hmm. If you have to explain why it tastes like a dead rat, it's probably not good. Yeah, you can quote me on that. <laughs> and so, what? What? I mean, our our competitive set is a lot of the big boys too, right? So, you know, we're we're kind of a weird thing in the industry, like a weird unicorn, mm-hmm. right? That uh, we're a small company partnered up with a big company. So I get to play in the big boy world, but I get to have destination. I get to do creative trials of things like this and Grenache from. From France and, you know, so we, we're going to make Gruner Veltlinger, right? I mean, right. like, you know, I mean, we probably tape a $50 bill to every one of those bottles, but it's a great experiment to do. So we're lucky that we get to spend time creating um, and that we're in a fighting varietal price point um, to make what I think are pretty interesting wines. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, we need, we need people doing the natural wine bars. We need that because it's drawing consumers in. A hundred percent. And I think this is actually... This made with organic yeah. grapes, the 22 Sauvignon Blanc mm-hmm. is sort of a, I think, I doubt you'll be surprised. You might be pleasantly surprised mm-hmm. at how well it does and how you'll be asked mm-hmm. to do that again. I think the number one way to get uh, the younger generation into, right, having a glass of wine and not feeling nervous about it, right, is 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 that it's kind of that peer pressure. You're having your friends over and everybody brings a bottle of wine and you pour it around because it looks like you don't session like, you know, I don't know, seltzer when you're having dinner and it's like the beginning right. of the dinners at the friend's house that people bring wine and they don't know if they really like it or not and like that to me is the way to get the generation into drinking wine kind of the same way we all got there except now they've passed through you know seltzer phase or beer phase we we probably all just had beer phase now you get the edible phase yeah get the vape phase so maybe we're just at, we're in, we're in phase four now yeah once it comes to the dinner party right and who doesn't love a dinner party <laughs> isn't that amazing all right. Um, any thought on reusable glass? Uh, I love it. Um, return and reuse yep. is amazing. Yep. I don't know how we do it in this country. And we're so not built for it. This Sauvignon Blanc, just for fun, um, the organic one is in lightweight glass. Yep. You didn't notice. If you grab the two of them, you notice it not by view, but by feel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we look, as an industry, we got to do a better job on glass and environmental things. Um, and so we're, I want to get ourselves, I want to get our cab and our Sauvignon Blanc over time into lightweight glass. Um, all the wine that we ship to Canada is an all lightweight glass, um, encouraged by the SAQ, the Eastern side of Canada, um, or else there's any big fat penalty bill. Um, and so this is the beginning of it, right? We got to get there. Glass is a disaster to buy anyhow right now. Environmentally, it's tough. So, you know, our whole industry, we got to get wise on glass. Yeah. And it just makes sense, right? It's so funny when you see, I don't know if you guys noticed little snacky foods. You have kids. So do you, Bart. The, that it used to be, you know, you had a big bag of like chips or whatever and it was kind of full. And now it's all the little snack bags that seem, it's like there's five chips yeah, in there. Yeah. And I think the the big companies have figured it out that, you know, they're still, oh, people are still getting a little package, yeah. but it it only has five chips in it. So we're giving them less mm-hmm. food. And by the way, we're saving a shit ton on shipping. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's there's some little messages in there um, coming from people that have a lot of bean counters. Hey, listen, um, the next generation is way better than all of our generation. And yeah. two below them right. are even better, right? right. So yeah. these younger people are going to have to fix what we all screwed up in our parents. And our yeah, grandparents I think the secret up. to the f- saving the future of the planet and our society is just getting the ball to my daughter's 20, like her generation or your son's generation, where like they're just operating on a totally different Way smarter than all of us. Yeah. 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 And way more conscious. Yeah. All right. Uh, Anything you want to promote going forward? Anything you're involved in? Any events um, that you're working on? Uh, Cycling events? Um, No, I would say the basic thing we need to promote is more people drinking wine. So let me know how I can help with that. You, I think you're doing your part. <laughs> <laughs> I try. Yeah. 
Two bottles a day is all I ask. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Shout out to the bunches for that. Um, Joel Gott, thank you very much. This has been awesome. Thank you, guys. Say hi to your family. I will. And uh, we'll see you soon. See you at a basketball game. Yeah, exactly. That's right. This weekend, right? <laughs> Our son's played. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is, he, is Dan playing? He is. Yeah. He's playing. As a matter of fact, last night at practice, um, uh, your son was kind of schooling Dane a little bit. Hmm. And it's good because I think Dane, this is, well, it's on the podcast, whatever. Your son brings an intensity to the game. Hmm. And he seems to... Um, uh, motivate some of the other kids with that. Oh, good. Like, and you know what I mean, right? I mean, like he talks a lot. Mm-hmm. He, he, he's always, I, he's like your, <laughs> yeah. He's, he's, yeah. he reminds me of you a little bit, maybe oh, when no. you were young. Oh no. So, oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> thanks Joel. Seriously, <laughs> All, right. I appreciate it. All right guys. Thank thanks for guys. listening to the podcast. James, thanks for sitting in today. Sam, um, happy, Special happy, assignment. happy Passover. Um, and uh, um, that's right. Happy Easter! Where this will yeah. show will come out on Friday. So I hope right. everyone happy Good Friday. Happy Good Friday. Have hope some fish. Have, uh, right. Yeah, some fish would be beautiful with the Sauvignon Blanc. And then if you're planning on having brisket, um, um, I think this Grenache would be amazing. Fish tacos at. Um, oh, thank <laughs> you. We had, we had a great lunch today. Right, stole a oh, wine. Yeah, fish tacos. Then... You got to get a breakfast biscuit sandwich yeah. at the station. Yeah, the gas station. Our pizza. We just opened our pizza place. What? So, yeah, yeah. We got pizza now. 4.30 on. At the station? Mm-hmm. Behind oh. it. We got the little, like, uh, Papa okay. Murphy size take away. Oh, man. Seriously. Yeah. So many reasons to drive over the mountains. Now. <laughs> right. I couldn't let all the good pizza be in Petaluma. Come on. <laughs> Petaluma pizza thieves. All right. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll look forward to talking to you next week. Hey, guys. I got